I want to invite your attention to Romans chapter 8, and we're going to read verse number 23 through verse 25, and that's Romans, the 8th chapter. We're going to read verse 23 through verse number 25. Now, I know that when you're at home, there are Mountain View, and this is to Mountain View. I know there are others watching, but Mountain View, I, we know that when, there are a few things I need to say before we read this text. One of the things is, if you want to keep the momentum and if you want uh, to not fall into the slump of bad habits, we need you, Mountain View, to be with us in real time. I want to encourage you to be with us in real time. Here's what happens when you begin to not to fall off of the real time worship. What happens is slowly but surely you'll develop the habit and you won't even, sometimes you won't even see it coming of, of connecting to worship at a different time. Well, when, what that causes is when we do reconvene together, you would have unhitched from the time we usually worship, and uh, it may be more difficult for you to realign yourself to the time we worship. Number two, when we do things in worship, I want to encourage you to do them at home, because when you unhitch with that, uh, you break uh, some of the cycle and the habit and even the significance of what we do. And so when we open our Bibles here virtually, I want to encourage you, Mountain View, to open your Bibles at home. I, I know it's a more relaxed environment. I know it's a more laid-back environment. But if you and I want to remain and keep some kind of level of consistency when we reconvene, I want to encourage you uh, to, to, to follow along and to not just be a spectator. That's the third thing. The temptation with watching online is that you can slip into being a spectator and lose being a participator. As a matter of fact, that can happen here. Uh, we have a few people here, and uh, we're glad to have them here. And I'm not just encouraging those who are online, but those of you who are here, though in small number, don't slip into the slump of being a spectator because if you are here, you are not here to watch a performance. You are not here to watch, to, uh, to watch something that pleases you. You are not here to evaluate worship. You and I are still here to worship God. For the Bible declares in John 4, 24, it hasn't changed in spite of what pandemic is going on or what's going on in our nation or what's going on in your life. The Bible still declares in John chapter 4 and verse number 24, for that God is spirit, and they that worship him must worship him in spirit and in truth. And so watch this. Worship might become a bigger challenge at this time because of the human uh, the human propensity not to remain focused. And so let me encourage you, Mountain View, in this season to remain focused. Our text this morning is Romans, the eighth chapter, verse 23 24 and 25 and if you want to respect the word the way uh, greater than we would respect the bride entering into a room and if you want to respect the word greater than we respect the family of a deceased one entering into a sanctuary then respect the word and stand whether you be here or whether you be at home stand out of respect for the word and follow along the Bible declares in Romans chapter 8 beginning with verse number 23 and terminating at verse 25. And not 
only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruits of the Spirit. Lord, have mercy. And if you write in your Bible or highlight, highlight first fruits of the Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for our adoption as sons. What adoption? Well, I, th I thought we already adopted, Paul. What are you talking about? The redemption of our body. For in hope we have been saved. But hope that is seen is not hope. For why does one also hope for what he sees? But if we hope for what we do not see, with perseverance we wait eagerly for it. You may be seated. This morning I want to talk to you on the subtopic of hope and the waiting room. Hope and the waiting room. In these times of uncertainty, and this is the main discomfort of these times, it is not as much of the pandemic as it is the uncertainty of these times. Uncertainty. The thing that makes you feel uneasy because you don't know how to move. Un uncertainty. It is that thing that creates deep insecurity because you don't know how to face whatever is before you. Un uncertainty. It is the thing that makes us lose a sense of control and by nature we are, we are creatures that like to be in control. I'm not saying that we are creatures that necessarily like to be controlling, but we like to have some sense of control in our lives. And one of the ways we can have some sense of control is by knowing when times are uncertain. They don't afford you the opportunity to know. When times are uncertain, they don't afford you the opportunity to, uh, to clearly and, and with almost perfection prepare because when you don't know, you don't know how to move. When you don't know, you don't know how to predict. You, you have no forecast. When you don't know what the weather is going to be like tomorrow, you don't know how to dress. And with uncertainty comes uh, a, 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 an uncomfortable feeling of being unprepared. And so in these times of uncertainty, we, are, we find ourselves not knowing what to do or not knowing what to expect. 
Being able to predict what's ahead of us gives us a stronger grip on what to expect. And so the greatest need in this time is a need for hope. And now let me explain hope based on the biblical model. Because there is a kind of hope that we have tossed around in our vocabulary. It is a hope based on us. It is a self-centered hope. It is a hope that means to wish for. But the hope that the Bible talks about is not a hope that has to do with wishful thinking. It is a hope that has to do with expectation. The hope of the Bible is not based on wistfulness. It's based on the Word. For instance, we may say and apply for a job and we may say, I hope, you might say, I hope I get that job. And what you may be referring to is the fact that you wish you get it and, and you're, you're really, really being wishful in your thinking. You're being optimistic. You optimistically wish you get the job. But the hope of Scripture is a totally different word than the hope that we sometimes use. The hope we use suggests that our foundation is our desire. The hope of Scripture is a different hope. It doesn't mean desire. It means expectation. Now, what's the difference between desire and expectation? The hope that we often use and the word we use often creates more uncertainty. We hope we get the job, which means that we are trying hard to be optimistic, knowing that there's a possibility we won't get it, and so we're tossed to and fro, and we're wishing really bad, and we're optimistic, and we're hoping, and we're wishing in that regard that we get it. But the hope of the Bible doesn't say, I wish for it. The hope of Scripture says, I expect it. The word hope in this text and throughout scripture in the New Testament most of the time comes from a word that means confident expectation. It means to not only expect but to expect with confidence. It is a word that carries the idea of a woman who when she becomes pregnant she confidently expects to have the baby. As a matter of fact, it is, so, it is so confident that when a woman is pregnant, we don't just call her pregnant, we say she's expecting. And the reason why she may say, I'm expecting even before you and I see any evidence of it is because that she is confident that what's going on with her now will come to pass in the future. I need you to see, my brothers and my sisters, that it may be that the hope that we have used and the word that we have used in this world and in this mundane has been a word that has multiplied uncertainty instead of eradicated uncertainty. Are you going to are we going to open the church? I hope so. Is this pandemic ever going to be over? Oh, I sure do hope so. Are you ever going to get back to your job? 
I'm really, really hoping for it. It is one that basically affirms that you don't know. It is used in a way that basically says you wish but you don't know and it leaves you with less confidence but the hope that we find in the scripture is a hope that says you can expect it. This text, Romans chapter 8, the Bible says that Paul is writing about something that's going on with creation and something that's going on with humanity, but the antecedent is in verse number 18. Verse number 18 of Romans chapter 8, the Apostle Paul makes this statement as he's talking about different, uh, uh, as he's talking and going to talk about different things. And the statement in Romans chapter 8 and verse number 18 says this. For I consider. For I consider. That the sufferings of the present time. That the suffering of the present time. Are not worthy to be compared with the glory. Are not worthy to be compared. With the glory. With the glory. That is to be revealed That to is us. to be revealed in us. What are you talking about, Paul? He gets on this talk about suffering and glory. Now, this is a text that many don't want to talk about. It's amazing how sometimes we run from texts like this, but the reality is there is no glory without suffering. Paul is talking about the massive global effect of suffering as a result of sin. He's talking about the effect of suffering even on creation, on the natural order of things. And if I'd had time, I'd go back and show you how everything was affected by sin to the point where everything had to undergo suffering, which means nothing in creation right now is what it was designed originally to be. As beautiful as the rose is, as beautiful, as, as, as uh, odorous as it permeates uh, and a beautiful odor and how, and, and, as, and as sweet as it smells, as much as we, uh, as we appreciate roses, the rose itself is nothing like it would have been had it not went through this global effect because of sin. Thorns wouldn't have come with roses. They would have just been flowers that emitted a beautiful odor, but because of sin, suffering comes into the world and affects everything in creation. And Paul is writing to the church in Rome, and he's talking about this global effect of and, and suffering and how global, global it is because of sin. I want to get right into verse 23, though I want you to see something here. He says, because of suffering, there's an anticipation for something else. And that anticipation is glory. Verse 18 says, suffering, and it talks about glory. Suffering and glory, two ends of the spectrum. Everything suffers, thus everything waits to enter into a space of glory. In verse number 23, 
It says, and not only this, but also we ourselves, after he talks about creation suffering and groaning, he says in verse 23, not only this, but also we ourselves, having the first fruit of the Spirit, even we ourselves groan. Now watch this. The groaning is not only because of the suffering, but the groaning is because of the anticipation. There's something about hope that leaves a subtle dissatisfaction. There's something about expectation that allow, won't allow you to be satisfied with where you are. There's something about expecting something better. There's something about the anticipation of something better because that's what the word hope means. It means expectation. It means anticipation. It's not talking about wishing. But there's something about anticipation that creates a little uneasiness. Not anxiousness to the point of sin, but it creates a dissatisfaction that makes you all right where you are, but not all right where you are. In this text, Paul talks about the first fruits. And in order to understand the first fruit, we need to go back to where that was originally established. And if we go to Exodus chapter 22 and verse number 29, what we will find is that God in the Old Testament established that everything that, that comes out of the ground, even their children, even the children of the children of Israel, everything first belonged to God. All things that were first and all things that were best belong to God. And often the best was the first. Just stay with me. The Bible says in Exodus chapter 22 and verse number 29, what does it say? You shall not delay the offering from your harvest and uh -huh. your vintage. Uh-huh. The, the firstborn of your sons you shall give to me. I want what's first, God says. That's where the first fruit comes from. It comes from the idea that even the very first murder and, and the very first uh, in, in the beginning, in Genesis chapter 4, where the Bible says that, uh, that Abel gave the fruit that, that he had tilled from the ground, but it wasn't his first. I mean, Cain, but it wasn't his first. Abel gave the first of his, of his, of his, and of his sacrifices, the first of, of his lambs, the first of, his, of the animals that he tended to. God wants first. Everything best and everything first belongs to God. Then in Exodus chapter 23, verse number uh, 16 and verse number 19, the Bible says what? And you shall also observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruits of your labors. There it is. You shall observe the feast of the harvest of the first fruit of your labor. From what you sow in the field. In other words, when you sow whatever first, whatever was first, God said, I want it. Also, and the read, watch this, read verse 19. I'm going to show you something. Read. You shall also bring the choice first fruits of your soil uh -huh. into the house of the Lord your God. Now watch this. God says, whatever's first, give it to me. And the reason why he said that whatever is first, you give it to me, is because he gave it to them to give to him. There would be no first fruit if it wasn't for God. And what God was saying with the first fruit 
what he was saying with the first is that there's more coming. That's why it's called first. There's no need to distinguish it as first if there was no more coming. So the first fruit was indicative that God was saying more is coming. The first fruit was indicative that God was saying it won't be the last. The first fruit was the best, so God was saying there is better coming. If you give me what's first and it's the best, first indicates that there's more coming. Now watch this. Paul uses this term in Romans chapter 8, verse 23. He says, not only this, but also we ourselves having the first fruit of the Spirit. What are we groaning for? We're groaning for glory. And what God does is he gives us his Holy Spirit as the first fruit to say that the Spirit dwelling in you is just the first of something better coming. The Holy Spirit indwelling the child of God is the appetizer. Y'all not hearing me in here. It is the appetizer. It is just the taste. It is just the foretaste of what's coming. But maybe we'll understand it in this illustration. Whenever we'd go over someone's house or even at my own house or even growing up, when the food was being cooked, in the kitchen. Every now and then mama or even my wife or even whoever was, whoever's cooking, whoever's being hospitable at the time and what they would do is they would come out into the living room and they would bring some of what was cooking in the kitchen and they would let you taste it. Now that taste created an expectation. That taste created an anticipation. That was the first fruit of what was cooking in the kitchen. And because you were in the living room, now that you have tasted and you've had the first fruit of what's cooking in the, living, uh, in the kitchen, there's something about being in the living room now that is not enough. There's something about being in the living room now that makes you a little dissatisfied. It's, it's comfortable. It's comfortable. The fellowship is good. The, the TV, whatever's on the television, it's great. I, I'm enjoying it. But because I've had a taste of what's going on in the kitchen, there's something about the living room that leaves me dissatisfied. In other words, I don't want to stay in the living room. We sing songs. As children of God, Lord, don't you know, I have no friend like you if heaven's not my home, then Lord, what will I do? The angels beckon me from heaven's open door. Now watch this, we sing it all the time, and I can't feel at home in this world anymore and I know we sing that but unfortunately that is not the conviction of everybody because if you haven't tasted what's cooking in the kitchen you can get comfortable in the living room if you've not had a foretaste if you don't know what it's like 
to have the love of God, to enjoy connection with God, to enjoy the fellowship of God that comes through the indwelling of the Holy Spirit. You don't have a foretaste, so you can easily become comfortable and satisfied where you are. But God, in his providence, gave us a foretaste of the first fruits of the Holy Spirit. Even we ourselves groan within ourselves. What do you mean? Because there's a holy dissatisfaction when you know what's ahead. It's a holy dissatisfaction. Now watch this. That holy dissatisfaction boosts the anticipation. It boosts hope. It boosts the expectation. In other words, God gives you a taste so that you know and that you can ha and so that you have an expectation. Let me tell you something about this groaning within ourselves. That groaning within ourselves is not a groaning of frustration. It is a groaning of anticipation. And if you if you don't relish the first taste, that anticipation can turn into frustration. And you said, preacher, you called this hope and the waiting room. Because the waiting room of the kitchen is the living room. The waiting room for glory is this land of suffering. And what gives us the, the, the ability and what gives us the motivation to wait Hope helps us to wait. It is hope. Now when I say hope, again, I'm not talking about wishing. I'm talking about expectation. The reason why you wait, we wait, is because we have an expectation. And when expectation is there, we have incentive to wait. And thus the Apostle Paul says, we ourselves groan within ourselves, waiting eagerly for the adoption of sons. Now, we are already adopted through the blood of Jesus Christ. So he's not talking about that initial adoption. What he's saying is while we are here, we only have part of what God has promised us. We're waiting for the full measure. We're waiting for the full meal. We, we've had a taste and we're waiting for the full measure of what we will be. Now are we the sons of God. And it does not yet appear what we shall be, but when we see him and when he comes again, we will see him as he is, for we shall be like him. All of this in the face of something. What, what do you mean by adoption of sons? Paul is saying the redemption of our bodies. Now, I know what some of you might have been anticipating. We don't want hope for later. We want hope for now. And like spoiled children of God who want hope on our terms, we become desirous or we become, we develop an anticipation for what we want. This hope here is one that has to do, uh, it, it is eschatological in nature. It has to do with the final hope. 
and we know people want hope, but here is the problem. The problem with human hope is that human hope, human expectation is built on human promise. And human promise is often savvy. In other words, the value of your hope comes from the validity of what gives it to you. We know what that means. If somebody who is notorious for not paying you back when you lend them money says, I'll give you your money next Tuesday, you have low expectation. Why? Because you can't have faith in the object of your hope. Because when you put your faith in the, an object that is not faithful, you are setting yourself up to lose hope. I think I said something off in there. The value of your hope is based on the character of the one who promises. And Paul here is talking about this hope because all throughout this chapter, he mentions things that we are promised. In verse number 11, he says that we will have the resurrection of our body. The resurrection of our body. And you say, Brother Hamilton, I know, but I'm talking about hope for a job. That's the problem. If you don't have hope, the final hope, it doesn't matter if you have hope now. And, it's, and what, what's saddening is many people who are children of God are disregarding the final hope because they want something now. At the end of the day, no, we don't have a death wish, but you need to understand if it's going to end in hope, then we can trust God for expectation along the way. But we have to understand that there are three ways that we can misapply hope. Where there are three ways that we can have a false expectation. Number one, we can have a false expectation or a false hope by expecting something out of someone that only God can deliver. Yes, we have jobs. Yes, we have doctors. But doctors don't heal you. And jobs don't take care of you. And whenever we miss or put our hope and, and develop an expectation out of someone that only God can deliver, then we are misplacing our hope. Number two, by expecting out of God, hear me today, we misplace our hope or our expectation by expecting something out of God that he does not promise. Everything we want is not what God promises. We are a people that, got, that, that have a desire and we want what we want and we want what we feel we need. But here's the thing, everything that we want is not what God promises. God doesn't promise, I'll give you everything you want. He doesn't promise he'll give you the job you want. He doesn't promise that when you get sick, uh, he'll heal you and you'll never get sick again. And so when you don't know the promises of God, you expect or hope out of God what he himself does not even promise. What does, what does he promise in this chapter? In verse number 11, he promises the resurrection 
of our bodies. And you say, that's corny. Of course it's corny when you want to stay here. When the living room is comfortable, the kitchen is corny. Oh, yeah, I missed that. When the living room is comfortable, then the kitchen is corny. But he had promises the resurrection of our bodies in verse number 11. Read that. But if the spirit of him who, is, who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, mm -hmm. he who raised Je Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life unto your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells so in you. So he promises his spirit and that that spirit would give us the resurrection of our bodies. Somebody said, that's morbid. I don't want to talk about death. You're in denial. You're in denial about this season. And some of us have, a, have such a, a, a desire to get back to normal that we're ignoring what's going on around us. And so we, the best way to feel normal is to deny your present reality. Here's the present reality. We're in a pandemic and there are people dying without Jesus. Does the church care anymore? You're not a hope dealer for God unless you're laying out the expectation that death is not where it ends because that's the promise of God. The Bible says, verse 15 through 17, he promises that you are adopted by God and that you're an heir and that you will be glorified with him if you suffer with him. You got to suffer with him. And I'm not saying suffer as in go through things and sickness, but it's talking about the ability to stay with God even through your suffering. To not leave God when you suffer. To not leave God when you suffer loss. To not leave, leave God when you suffer trauma, when you suffer all of these things because glory is coming. Verse 19 through 21 Verse 18, rather, he says, I'm not only suffering, but that suffering will end in glory. And then, of course, through ni verse 19 through 21, he talks about how creation is suffering and groaning. Verse number 24, for in hope. What hope? What do you mean hope? In expectation, in confident expectation, we have been saved. Let me tell you how this works. The way this works is that faith in God. We're talking about the hope that Paul, this hope. Now, there are a lot of hopes we have. And I, and I said I'd give you three things, of, uh, three things that have to do with misplaced hope. The third thing that has to do with misplaced hope is starting with what you want when it comes to your expectation. We don't dictate to God what we want. And... And I believe that in this season, a lot of us are finding out that we've treated God like uh, a person at the cash register waiting to take our order. And our expectation comes from what we want. And I believe that in this season, we are learning that we've used prayer to command God. Prayer is not for us to command God and to bark orders at God. Prayer is so that we can express to God and submit to God through prayer to his will. Which means it's never about us. 
And if your expectation comes from you and it comes from what you want, then you are misappropriating and you are misplacing hope. Your hope is in God, or at least that's where it should be. The Bible says, we continue to read, for we are saved by hope. Let me just show you how this works. When you trust God, what faith is, is faith is your belief and your trust in what God said, present and past. Hope is your expectation based on that faith of God delivering in the future. Don't miss this. Faith is trusting what God said presently and in the past. Hope is expectation and confident anticipation for the future. Watch this. When, we, when I told my children that we are going to Six Flags or we're going on vacation, they believe what I said. And, when a and because they believe what I said, they had an anticipation for what they believed to come to pass. If you believe the wrong thing, then you have the false anticipation. If you believe the wrong thing, then you have a false expectation. So it's very important in this season, church, that we don't lose our scruples and that we keep our faith in God because where your faith goes, your hope will be directed. There's a thing called the widowhood effect. The widowhood effect is that sometimes when people have been married a long time, within three months to three years, statistics say that for some couples, when one dies within the next three months to even three years, the other one would die because of what's called the widowhood effect. They're so tied together that they've developed an interdependence on one another to where they literally cannot live without each other. It's called the widowhood effect. Well, faith and hope are married. And wherever your faith dies, it won't be long before the widowhood effect takes place and your hope dies. You show me a person whose hope is dying. I'll show you a person whose faith is in the ICU. You show me a person who stopped expecting things to come to pass that God says, and I'll show you a person that stopped believing. And guess what? Because of a chain reaction, you don't stay in the waiting room if there's no expectation of a baby coming. You don't stay in the, you don't stay, uh, in the living room if you're not waiting for what's going on in the kitchen because patience is tied to it. And all of us are in different waiting rooms right now, waiting ultimately for the redemption of our bodies. But the reality is, in our life, we are in different waiting rooms. 
We're waiting because we have an expectation. We're waiting because we have a hope. And sometimes that waiting will try our hope. And that hope being tinkered with would try our faith. Do you see why the devil wants your faith? Because if he can get your faith, he can take away any expectation you have. Any expectation of something better. Any expectation of deliverance. Any expectation of, of, of a final glory. If he can get you to lose faith in suffering, he can get you to lose hope in glory. So what are some things principles we can live by. Number one, keep your expectation beyond your situation. Go to John chapter 17. John chapter 17. I want to show you something. How even the Son of Man demonstrated hope as a matter of fact, he demonstrated hope so well <laughs> that he, in praying to God, skipped over the situation. And yes, he anticipated suffering, but he skipped over the suffering. And because he had a greater anticipation for glory, he skips over the suffering and goes right to the glory. In John chapter 17 Beginning with verse number one, the Bible says what? Jesus, Jesus spoke these things, and lifting up his eyes to heaven, he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Do you know what hour he was talking about? <laughs> what was about to happen to Jesus? Jesus was about to suffer. But he was speaking in hope. And when you speak in hope, you speak past the situation and you dwell on your expectation. What he was expecting was to be glorified. And the way it was going to happen was through by means of him being crucified. He was going to be crucified and glorified, but he's praying to God and he's saying the hour is come. Now, I know in this hour, crucifixion and suffering is there, but my hope is beyond that. So I'm going to go past the situation into the expectation, and I'm saying, God, Father, glorify me. And we, when we have a healthy hope, we look past the situation onto the expectation. You start talking about things beyond the suffering. Like a mother. Someone who's expecting. She's making plans for the baby at home. She, she has baby showers. And she has baby showers, and, and people bring pampers, and br people bring Infamil and Similac, and people bring di diapers, and they bring pacifiers, and they bring bibs with no cute bibs with the baby's name on it, and it's so cute. They buy cribs, and they paint the room, and they do all of this. They buy, they buy all kinds of stuff, but, 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 but part of this process is going to include her being in excruciating pain. But she's operating off of 
future hope, which, watch this, causes her not to be in denial about the suffering, but to endure patiently the suffering. Meaning what's in the delivery room is going to be worth the wait in the waiting room. And we need to learn in this season to look in hope and expectation to what's in the delivery room because what's in the delivery room is worth the wait. When a person gets hurt and they get sick and they have to be taken to the ER, the hardest time to wait is when you're in pain. But you know, the last time I went to the ER, I had something going on, and because I'm a transplant patient, uh, when something goes on, I have to go. There's some pain going on. But it's amazing how the discomfort of, of my suffering drove me to be patient in the ER anticipating seeing the doctor. Now, 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 did I enjoy it? No, I didn't enjoy it. And patience doesn't mean the pain goes away. The waiting room can be painful. But your expectation is what makes it worth waiting for. And when I finally got seen and they finally called my name, I went with eager anticipation they took my vitals and I waited again in the emergency room that they had appointed me. So here I am waiting again. All of this waiting. What's motivating my waiting? Why is it that I don't just get frustrated and leave? There is something motivating my patience. There is something motivating my long-suffering. And what's motivating it is the fact that what I'm hoping for, what I'm expecting, is going to make everything I went through worth it. Life is a waiting room. And one of these days, we're going to get called. And all of the suffering and all of the pain and all of the decay and all of the destruction and all of the corruption is all going to be cease because God is going to call us. And guess what? We don't want to hear it, but we sing it all the time. I'll be somewhere listening for my name. Well, what are you doing in the meantime? I'm waiting. When you talk to children of God about this kind of thing, though, sometimes the reason why we don't want to hear it is because there's cable in the waiting room and our favorite show is playing. Sometimes we don't want to hear it because maybe we're not in enough pain in the waiting room. See, when you're waiting to be seen for a routine visit, everything in the waiting room piques your interest. The TV is on, and if your show is on, it's easy to wait. Magazines are laid out on the table. You grab a magazine, everything piques your interest. But you can be in a situation where nothing in the waiting room piques your interest.
and pain and suffering is that situation. So in the meantime, let me read this final verse and the lesson will be yours. The final verse in Romans chapter 8 verse, is verse number 25 of our text. But if we hope or expect for what we do not see with perseverance, we eagerly wait for it or we wait eagerly for it. Keep, somebody said, keep hope alive. Well, the only way to keep hope alive is you can't let faith die. Otherwise, the widowhood effect. When your faith dies, your hope dies. When your hope dies, the love child between faith and hope, the daughter of faith and hope called patience, can't live without her parents. So you lose faith, you lose hope, and you lose patience. And when you lose those things, there is no reason to live. There's no reason to live for God. And so what happens is you find yourself putting hope and other things and living a life full of disappointment and you become bitter. You become embittered because you've been let down by so many people and whenever you hear people who talk about how much they've been let down by people, it is because they put hope in people. At the end of the day, your hope should be built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness. Or oh, if I had a praying crowd this morning, that would be a shouting point, but I don't have my amen crowd this morning. Your hope should be built on the Lord. So, what about, preacher, what about hope in this season? I mean, what about hope for a better tomorrow? If God says ultimately it'll be all right, if God can take care of the ultimate, he can take care of the present. Which means in order to keep your hope regulated correctly, you have to have your hope affiliated with the promises of God. What does he promise about sickness? He promises that he is a healer. But he doesn't promise that he'll always heal you from sickness. He promises that he is a provider. But he doesn't promise that you'll always keep your job. And so the reason why there are still so many uncertainties is because without hope or without faith, there's nothing left but uncertainty. But you need to understand that the way to keep your hope up is to keep your faith in God, which means faith is the substance of things what? Hope for. The substance of your expectation is faith. And faith operates as the evidence of what you can't see. People who do not trust God live in a world of uncertainty, but God gives us an opportunity to have expectation in a world of uncertainty by putting our faith in him.
when you put your faith in him. He'll never let you down according to his will. He didn't, I, I didn't say if you put your faith in him, you'll never be down. This, we have to shed ourselves of the age of Christianity being a feel-good religion. It is not a feel-good religion where you come together and you look for these moments where you are high. We have used sometimes Christian, the Christian life like a drug to get high emotionally, to get high in our feelings, to get high in our mood. But at the end of the day, your Christianity and your hope and your faith are not tested by how high you can get, but how much you can trust them when you're low. And how well you can hold on to your expectation when you feel like God has taken too long and you're just sitting in the waiting room. Sitting in the waiting room. Sitting. in the waiting room, waiting, seeing other people get seen, sitting in the waiting room, sitting, sitting in the waiting area at a restaurant. You know you ordered your food an hour ago. Your hunger is increasing and the in the waiting room, your, your hunger increases, your, you, you groan, you, you're dissatisfied, you, you, you taste it, what it's like, and you're waiting for the full measure. I, I, don't, want just a, I don't want just a bite, I, I don't want just a forkful, I want the whole meal, but in the meantime, I'm waiting, and you have a choice. You can keep expecting or you can allow your impatience to cause you to drop your expectation and leave the waiting room. It isn't that God doesn't promise life to his children. It's just sometimes we in the waiting room stop expecting it. Hold on to your hope. Hold on to your expectation. If you are not a child of God, you are without hope if you are without God. You are without hope if you are without Christ. And there's coming a day where God will reconcile all things. He will call those who chose him to everlasting life and those who did not obey the gospel, he will call into judgment. Put your hope in Jesus. Maybe you have questions about what it takes to be saved today. Maybe you're one of those people that you, you just want to be a good person and you think being a good person is enough. And unfortunately, there are even some saints that are starting to subscribe to the just be a good person to have good moments. Remember, 
hope ought to be founded on the promises of God. And if you're hoping and expecting out of God something he did not promise, then you have a false hope. And there will always be other voices giving you other promises to put your hope in and develop and causing you to develop other expectations. But you cannot hold God accountable for not keeping a promise he never made. He promised that if you are in Christ, you'll be a new creature. And with that promise comes the fact that old things are passed away and all things are become new. Maybe you want prayer. Just put it down. If you're watching via Facebook, just uh, type your prayer requests in. We'll be sure to take your prayer requests. Send an inbox if it's personal. Maybe you want deeper study. We, if you put your name and your phone number in the inbox, we'll contact you so that we can talk more to you about the saving hope, the hope that saves us. It is the hope that we have in Christ, the expectation we have in Christ while in this waiting room called life and in this waiting room called suffering. God bless you and may he keep you.